thrust. Put on sidewalk up. Make it loud. This is a Romeo Fox God, Shall we dance? Everybody and welcome to the podcast. This is Bill, and I'm with the command team as we get ready to bring you another great and exciting show. Hopefully, there'll be a few laughs, but hopefully, you'll learn some good things and really get the creative juices going for your war gaming. So, with me today, starting going from west to east, is our historical editor, chief guru man himself, Big Jim Ariskany. Jim, how are you doing today? Hey, everybody. Sorry about that. That's um, all right. Hello, everybody. How you doing? All right. So Jim's a little uh, tired today. He's been working really, really hard on a great game that's going to be played today. A uh, little SAS action in the desert. So uh, looking forward to seeing the results of that one. Also, we have Marty, our project manager, shop foreman, the, the, the man who can do all with a little bit of tools. Good morning, all. I don't know if I would say that, but uh, yeah, I've been busy building some stuff. Excellent. We'll talk <laughs> a little bit about that. And then the man behind hell, Mr. Chris. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Helping Marty build stuff. Excellent. All sorts of fun. Excellent. Now, hopefully our hail will be a little bit more nicer to the human race than the one in 2001. So we'll have sorry, to see. Sorry, Dave. I can't do that. <laughs> and then over in the great United Kingdom, the man who keeps those machines a flying and keeps the pilots real, Mr. Gaz. How are you, sir? I am good. Thank you. It's good to be here. Excellent. All right. So we've got a jam packed show for you today. Um, so we thought we'd start off with, you know, our typical routine and just kind of catch up with everybody since the last show and see what they're kind of working on. So Jim, I already alluded to your project. So why don't we have you go ahead and start? Um, it's been a long week. Uh, we've got op centers one and two up already. Um, or should say parts one and two for the Gulf War. Part three is complete. Part four is in production. Part three will go up on the uh, 30th Saturday, the 30th of January. Um, so please look forward to that. That's where we actually kick off the ground war uh, in 1991 Persian Gulf, uh, Desert Saber, actually. And uh, we're also doing some uh, tabletop 15 millimeter gaming. Uh, you people have probably seen some of the uh, the video that we put up there uh, this past for our Wednesday show. Um, that was part one of our game. Part two has also uh, been filmed and put in production and should be rolling out uh, this next Wednesday coming up. And um, yeah, we're doing our usual Sunday games. So we're doing a... a a scud hunt of um, 
elements of uh, Alpha Squadron, 22nd SAS Regiment, are going to be going after some scuds in western Iraq uh, later on today in our, uh, bow, in our um, I'm sorry, uh, SIDREP skirmish system. Excellent. So yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It's all desert. Uh, it's all desert. Uh, desert storm themed. That's going to continue at least for my end for at least another couple of weeks uh, until we get deep into um, you know February, uh, and then we'll finally change gears and move on to something else. Excellent. And on top of that, you did a miniatures um, let's play uh, playthrough. Yeah, that, that, that was the Wednesday game I was talking yep, about. Yep. So and there's part two coming up this Wednesday. Correct. Yep. Good, because I know right. we've had a lot of people uh, commenting on that, Jim, just so you know, on, on uh, YouTube. Um, so th they seemed really excited for part two. Um, and also, oh, yeah, I've been tracking YouTube and, and you know, responding to everybody. Good. Certainly. Yeah, I saw your comments. But, uh, yeah, no, there's been a lot of positive feedback on YouTube and on uh, Facebook. And I wanted cool. to bring up uh, really quick. Let me bring up Messenger here on my phone. Because we got some really good feedback on um, some stuff as well. And I wanted to um, – we have the gentleman from uh, Quartermaster 3D. Um, he's showing off some good stuff on his Kickstarter. Um, so that's good. Uh, we have Greg from over at the guys at Delta uh, – with the game Delta 1-0 – who are interested in uh, coming on the show. So hopefully we'll get them on soon and we can talk about their game. And I wanted to make a special. Yes, and that's a fun little game. And I, wanted I, ha I have it. Good. And I wanted to make a uh, shout out to Seth. Uh, he was kind enough to reach out to us. And I want to read this because I thought this was really nice. He says, hey, guys, I just wanted to reach out and say thank you for all your hard work on the show. I recently found it when searching for a Spectre Operations themed podcast. When I found yours and gave it a listen, I instantly became a fan. So much so, I passed it on to my buddy, and now he wants to play tabletop games. Ha ha. So thank you for all you do. So I thought that was really nice, and that really encourages everything goes on. So all that hard work in, that everybody's putting in, um, you know, that really just, you know, makes it that much more. So, Jim, you've had a really busy week, and you've got a busy uh, game ahead of us after we record this, and people will know the results of that game before they hear this podcast. But I, I'm excited because that is a um, special event during, you know, uh, Desert Storm when you had the Scud Hunters. The, is it the 22nd SAS? Um, yeah, two columns. I think it was – I know Alpha Squadron was one of them. I'm uh -huh. not familiar with who the other one was. Um, yeah, but we've got the, uh, the areas that uh, – the British were looking at. We got the areas where the American Delta Force was looking at. Um, Navy SEALs were back there, I believe. Uh, Green Berets. Um, everybody was back there, um, you know, looking around for these things. How many of them they actually were able to find and how effective the tactics were has since called been called into some very serious question. Mm -hmm. um, it can't be denied that, um, however, even if, you know, whatever the shortfalls were, a tactically or operationally, strategically, it worked because it, um, it helped assure uh, the Israelis and keep the Israelis out of the war. If the Israelis had entered that war, that would have been it. Yeah. Um, we, we would have lost most of our allies and that would have been, that would have been, you know, game over. Exactly. Um, and one of the big, one of the, one of the big reasons that the Israelis were able to justify to their own people, uh, that they were not going to retaliate against these attacks were again, the Patriots, which again, didn't work as well as people like to think they did. And, uh, these special operations, um, guys. 
So what they would try to do is try to find these scud sites, these mobile scud sites. The problem is that they were mobile. They were on these big old Soviet trucks and, um, you know, calling an airstrike on them. So there were like uh, those um, MH-53 uh, uh, pave pennies or pave lows, I should say. Sorry, mm-hmm. pave pennies is, is a laser pod. Um, the pave low helicopters would come in, um, A-10s, F-15 strike eagles, British tornadoes. Um However, again, all the all the Iraqis would usually do is just park them under a, a highway overpass, and it would usually, you know, save them. Um, so what we're doing here today is okay. The airstrike has gone in, failed, and now it's up to the SAS to actually destroy it on the ground. Sweet. Because calling in an airstrike, while militarily effective, isn't always the best game. Okay, move your units, move your units, move your units. Make a roll to pay the t- uh, to paint the target with a uh, you know designation laser. Okay, you make a roll. Okay, game over. You win. You know that's. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to get a little bit more involved in that. So we're assuming that the airstrike has already failed, and now it's up to uh, SAS to take these things uh, out on the ground. Awesome. That sounds like an awesome game. It really does. All right. So Marty, what have you been up to? I know you got some building going on, some creations. Yep. Hold on there. Yeah. <laughs> If I take myself off mute. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, so I am building a, uh, a small Ukrainian village. <laughs> uh, I've got a bunch of houses uh, that are uh, in progress. They're uh, probably 80% done because I'm uh, batch building them. I'm not building one and then going back and building another. I'm, mm-hmm. building, all, uh, I'm building five of them at the same time uh, to match up with the first scenario in uh, Ultra Combat Modern. Awesome. Uh, Additionally, uh, you know, looking, uh, you know, most of my hobby work's been specific to, to a table for that mission. Uh, so I have trees, trees, and more trees, uh, you know, and in, in true fashion, uh, you know, I got a bunch of cheap Chinese trees, which, mm-hmm. you know, I got a bunch of them and I got a good price on, but they didn't look that good. So I had to, uh, I reflocked them all and they look much better. Uh, so, uh, currently they are, uh, They've been reflocked and uh, varnished, uh, but I haven't mounted them on their bases yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got a bunch of I got a bunch of bases crank, nice. cranked out for them, so uh, progressing nicely on that front. I think and that's going to be a twenty-eight right, mil, right? It's all twenty-eight mil. Yep. Yeah, awesome. And uh, uh, I think I need to make fourteen linear feet of road uh, for that board, so mm-hmm. that'll. That'll be next. Oh, yeah. And then we got to build the board. Uh, over at Chris's house, uh, we built a we, – we cheated. We had a, uh, a 4 by 8 uh, table, if you will, already built uh, that actually used to be like a shelving unit in Chris's garage. Mm-hmm. But it was already a, uh, you know, big 4 by 8 sheet of plywood that was framed out. We put a nice uh, frame around it, and uh, we uh, filled in the uh, – uh, the, the plywood sanded it out and whatnot. So uh, nice. It it will look nice, and then uh, we need to uh, we're going to build a MDF modular uh, table to go that will fit inside of it. Mm-hmm. So that way we can uh, use that table. And that table is really just going to be like uh, just the platform, yeah, uh, like train yeah. grass. Yeah. Uh, so that way we can use it for all the follow-on missions. Mm-hmm. You know. I don't want to, you know, not that I don't want to, but if I build a dedicated table for this one mission, 
then I have to build another one for the next mission right. and so on and so forth. So, yeah. you know, all, all the terrain will be, uh, uh, scatter terrain, but fortunately the lion's share of it is built for the first mission anyway. That's good. You know, so we'll pretty much have everything we need for the follow on missions, uh, that are in the book when, uh, uh, we get done with uh, that first mission table. So, yeah, we're progressing nicely. Good, good. Uh, as well as uh, Chris and I did an initial playthrough on uh, Ultra Combat using the uh, the fire team rules. Uh-huh. So, so we'll talk about that in a little bit here. How it works. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> about that in a little bit. All right, Mr. Wimmer, what you got going on? Well, assisting uh, Marty with all this stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, in addition to that, um, working out some of the camera angles, uh, trying to do overhead, uh, the field of view and, uh, the stuff that we need to adjust for that, uh, doing a bunch of, uh, rewiring, um, cause there's no sense tripping over stuff right. after you get it all up. Um, mostly technical behind the scenes stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, that's just as important as what goes on in front of a camera. All right. Sir Gaz. Hey, hey, uh, just so you know, my friend, you know that uh, big, um, what is it, the Coldstream Guards guy, the palace guy, you know, that wood thing I have in my uh, basement, the studio that I got from my dad's house, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, we have affectionately named it Gaz. Just All so right, cool. So I we're think gonna, it's taller than me. Yeah, so you're, you know, you're, you're, you're now guarding <laughs> the new game library PlayStation area, so... What so, you got uh, going my on, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've got a new uh, printing machine that I've just been dialing in this. Oh, time. what did you um, get, sir? So I picked up a Frozen 4K Mini. Shut um, up. Yeah, and it is next gen. So as part of us looking into recently, you know, the, the printing of miniatures, uh, I wanted to look at what was on the market. I've been using an Anycubic Photon now for probably 18 months or so. Uh-huh. And, um, I bit the bullet, paid the money, and um, yeah, I have to say it is, it is the next gen. Is it? I honestly can't see me needing a better machine after. Really? Yeah. What do you, what do you, I think, what's the improvements versus the Anycubic? Because now I'm going to have to buy one because you did, and you know I want to be able to justify uh, the purchase, so... What are you? What are uh, the benefits you're saying? Paints all over again. <laughs> so, yeah. It's more expensive. Well, possible, but, uh, the the white hole detail is better. Okay. The speed is faster. Is it awesome? Uh, it, yeah. Not huge amount because you're printing. I'm printing at not point two. Uh-huh. So, um, so you you know you're really scaling up the detail to to the point where I can. I printed a shoulder pad off that has um, words going across it. Uh, this is actually for another game system that's non-historical, so I won't mention it. But most people out there will actually shoulder pad understand what that is. Are you doing um, some uh, GW-type game? Uh, I needed a complex free file to test. Uh-huh. So I just literally dug out one for what's called a death watch, which uh-huh. have writing on the shoulder. Yep, and, yep. It's, and there's maybe, I don't know, 10 lines of text covering about five mil really and all lines are clear as a bell all right it is Damn very it. impressive which one is that the photon oh, it's the frozen frozen 4k mini Damn it! 
All right. Um, the uh, good thing I like is model, right? So yeah. So mechanically, it's a lot simpler. Uh-huh. The the mechanism for holding the plate is a four screw mechanism. So you get your plate leveling. Should I've not changed my plate leveling since I've been running it all. I've been running it all week, even when I'm in bed. <laughs> I like go to work. I leave it. I leave a big file on. I come home. It's ready. I put chuck a couple more on in the evening. Then I get another big file. Chuck it on overnight. Just randomly printing stuff. To it's probably took me three or four days to key in the the various settings to where I'm now consistently getting a full plate. I'm consistently getting everything on the stalks. You know, I'm not losing material. I don't have to clean the uh, FEP film that is part of the process because it's coming out clean every time. Nice. And I can pop without breaking the legs and stuff as well. So, but that took me probably a few days of, I mean, I'm using advice online to start me off and then tweaking it for the files I use. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been, it's been nice. So I'm looking forward to getting the files off you for what you printed the other day. Um, uh, was it about a week and a half ago now you printed off oh, the infantry? Yes, yes. Yeah, so I'm gonna make sure you get those. Yeah, and I'll do a side by side with Excellent. the any cubic photon versus which is an, an old machine now. Yeah, yeah, it is. You, want, you guys can see if you think it's worth you know transitioning to the to the next level. Um, and I think it's mainly because so Frozen have done a really weird thing. They've actually gone ahead of the market instead of stayed level and pegging with it. Uh-huh. So original machines were two K. Yeah. Then we're at two K mono now. Um, Frozen just went to 4K mono now, so they practically left everybody behind. Yeah. So I have to ask you, does it use a special kind of resin, or can you use any resin? Um, so I, I just went off the advice of uh, a guy called, uh, I think it's 3D Printing Pro on YouTube, because uh-huh. he does a lot of testing. So one of the ones he said was good for it. I, I He said three. I just picked up the one that was the cheapest, if I'm honest. Okay. Um, and and from there, you know, I've I've just been running with that for now. I've just literally got two more liter bottles of it. Gotcha. So let me ask you this: um, build plate size is it similar to the any cubic? Is it bigger? It's the same. It's the it's same. Made, meant for miniatures, but there there is other uh, machines in their shop that are larger build plates. Uh-huh. But I have I have a Prusa, so for terrain and stuff. So I didn't really need and the extra plate too. Dang. Yeah, I've got a Mark III, Mark I three. Um, I'm still putting it together because I've got it in. Um, oh, the kit form. Flat, flat pack. Yeah, so yeah. I'll save myself a few hundred, but um, it's probably about 14, 15 hours to put it together if you take your time. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, um, that's encouraging, and I'll make sure you get those files over because I definitely want to see that. So, oh boy, that's uh, so, interesting. Yeah. Question. Question for you. Do you think it's the the files that are make the the difference on the on the print? No, no. no so it's the LCD. So it's the well, it's okay. the accuracy of the light coming through. Yeah, no, that okay. allows them. To do. Let me rephrase my question because I've got a I've got a one of the two K models yeah. uh, from Anycubic, um, and I was expecting to be really impressed with the the level of detail. But you don't see because there's no further detail in the model. It can only be as detailed right. as the model. Yeah. So, yeah. are the models any? You know, are there any any decent models out there that can actually? Um, oh yeah. 
Oh yeah, there is. <laughs> detail. Okay. Yeah, there's um, so basically now some of the sites online, the guys that design characters for computer games have put up 3D compatible files that you can print at whatever scale you scale it to. So although it looks like a 75 mil and it might be scaled that initially, you could just 50% that and print it. So it's as much as your machine can then put in the detail. Okay. All right. All right. I'm looking forward to that. So, all right, just to quickly close out. So what have I been up to? Um, I'm working on a lot of review videos. Um, I'm going to be re- doing a video on the Ultra Combat Modern Rulebook uh, review. I'm doing a review video on Terrain Essentials, the new book by Mel Bowes, uh, the Terrain Tutor. Uh, if you backed him in Kickstarter, you got your book, and I think it's going to go to retail next month, if I'm not mistaken. Gaz, did you jump in on that one? Yeah, I've got uh, Mel's book, yeah. uh, for those who don't know, Mel Bowes, Terrain Tutor. Probably one of my favorite YouTubers when it comes to terrain. No, my favorite YouTuber when it comes to terrain. Fantastic guy, really easy to understand and follow his steps. I particularly love his smoke markers using wire and um, flock, like bush flock, mm-hmm. um, and making them up for my Flames of War tanks when they're destroyed. Yep. Uh, fantastic. Really do like that. And they're good for laying smoke on the battlefield as well. But yeah, got his book. It's a, it's, it's a sterling piece of work. It it's is. high quality. It, it just it smells beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah, like I didn't back the, the Kickstarter. Uh-huh. Yeah, I didn't back the Kickstarter. No? So I'm looking forward to it going going to retail here and seeing if I can get a copy. It'll uh, be on Amazon. In a couple weeks. I think next month. I saw a thing. Yeah. Dave posted a thing. Um, Dave Taylor. Um, you know, so it will be coming to Amazon and other retail outlets in the next couple of weeks. So I've got Terrain Essentials, I've got Ultra Combat Modern, and we'll also do a comparison of Ultra Combat Modern versus Ultra Combat Normandy, since that book came out way before Modern did. So um, Marty and Chris don't know this yet, but eventually we're going to do a, a comparison. When we play the scenario in Ultra Combat Modern, we're then going to switch it up to World War II, and we'll use my bolt action figures and we'll do a playthrough of the Ultra Combat Normandy and see the differences in play. So I just yeah. purchased that. I'm sorry, what? I just purchased Ultra Combat Normandy. Oh, okay. Yeah, Chris just got Normandy. I don't see too much differences, obviously, versus, you know, modern techniques and weapons and stuff. So we'll see that. Um, also, uh, I have a review of a game we're going to talk about today, uh, Victoria Cross 2. Um, I played that with my oldest son, Jesse, last weekend. Uh, it's If you don't know what it is, it's the uh, combined uh, game of Islinwana and Rourke's Drift. So you can play either of those two battles. It comes in the box. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit. But And I played a little bit of uh, Band of Brothers... Um, it's another, I think it's a Worthington game, if I'm not mistaken. And it might not be, I can't remember which one. I thought I can't, it's a warrant. Well, yeah, it is a Worthington game. So, uh, we'll talk about that as well. So that's what I've been up to. We need to get, uh, we need to get some of these games on camera. Uh, you know, it, you're a hundred percent right. And I plan on now that I know how to play it. Uh, you know, I wanted to go through it first before I put it on camera. So now that we know how to play it, it's a, smooth operating game and we'll talk about it in a little bit when we get to that part but you know what time it is it's time for the news and we're going to send it over to our uk studio 
to our newsman himself, Mr. Gaz. I love how you say studio when I'm sat here in the corner of my bedroom. Come on, you just uh, broke the illusion, dude. <laughs> it's because I've got no music, but we're coming to that. We'll you know? work on it for you, brother. <laughs> and then I could just run in through the door, slide in the chair onto the <laughs> talk to the mic. Perfect. You know? we, need get the, uh, we, we need to get the intro from RoboCop. Uh, <laughs> media news. You give us 30 seconds, we'll give you the world. <laughs> So the news, um, strangely enough, um, one of the reasons I did mention the printer today is the first time the news is Spectre Miniatures, which should please one of our, one of the guys we were talking about earlier who posted about uh, recently joining our podcast. So right. um, Spectre Miniatures have now moved into the STL world. Who'd have thought? Yeah, so right. on their website now, on their online store, there are STL files that you can purchase. Currently, it's for mainly scattered terrain. Uh, it's only a few items to get them started, but some of these are ideal for, for the game systems that we love. Uh, everything from sort of the Hesco barriers that you see in a lot of the modern games to random wheelie bins for your, you know, citywide, and you can use them in the police type games. I mean, this is obviously their start point, their conditioning units, barrels, you, you know, the really good scattered terrain that you want. And they've already started to produce some weapon systems that you could mount on miniatures if you want to change stuff around. So mm-hmm. it's like an insurgent package with a few weapons in there. There's some uh, HMV weapon mounts, so some of the machine guns and heavy gear that you'll see on the top of the vehicles, and ideal for technicals as well, homemade technicals. Um, if nothing else, uh, you want to put out something that's for your objectives. These are good as well. Uh, there's guns and ammo, so there's you know launchers, there's a number of ammo tins, boxes, uh, really nice set and a great start point for for a part of the industry that a lot of companies are not moving into and might get left behind if they don't. Right, exactly. Uh, where do you see that, Gaz? Because I'm not finding it on their page. Um, I put the link up. Oh, in the I see it. I see oh, it. Sorry. it. Sorry, I clicked on the wrong uh-huh. thing. Yeah, because you got some really. Have you tried printing these yet on your printer? No, so these, uh, I've not picked up any of them yet. Okay. Uh, for the UK, they're about six, seven quid each. Uh-huh. Some are four, five. So the price varies depending what you're after. Right. Um, well, I'm going to I'm gonna grab a couple files, and I'm going to, like the oil drums, we could use definitely in the, you know, um, some of these other ones. The Hesco's. The Hesco's. Going to come in handy for battle yeah. space and stuff, I think, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking um, for the uh, Ukraine table, what kind of scattered train okay. we could use, so. Um, money and gold bars. Now, that'd be good for a bank robbery scenario, right? Um, all yeah. right. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and see how they come out on the Anacubic. But uh, that, yeah, it's cool. Um, so yeah, it was nice to see them embracing that aspect as well. Yeah, I think given the amount of good miniatures they already have, doing a package that takes some of the pressure off them because of the production process, mm-hmm. such a scatter. Uh, it's a great idea to go down the STL route because it's not core to the game, but it's nice to have. So as people, more people pick up a 3D printer, I think they'll have their catalog to a good size when these things become almost click a button and when you get home, it's already there next to your computer. It's good for them to be starting now. Yeah, most definitely. What else you got for us, Inspector? Yeah, sticking with Spectre Miniatures because, you know, modern is our primal love. Um, they've got a new Delta package out of six fighters. Ordered it. So, 
Yeah, <laughs> strange that. Marty, have you ordered it yet? No pressure. <laughs> well, he finds some mic. Uh, it was yeah. Sorry, sorry yeah. Uh, uh, I was slow on the draw, so I did not get in in time. Are they sold out? That, uh, that I will yeah. check live for you now. Um, nothing here about them being sold out, Marty. I think you're just making excuses. <laughs> no, I saw. Uh, oh, I saw a Facebook post that said that they were gone already, so I oh. uh, didn't even go. Uh, so oh. wait a minute. You're saying they're still there? Well, yes, they're on their page, and they're gone. Be right back. <laughs> Whether that maybe it's a UK thing. <laughs> wait, I can smell smoke. Is he smoke? To <laughs> left the room to. No, we'll I'm also to buy them. <laughs> I'm, I've, got, I've gone bill on you. <laughs> I'm, buy, I'm, I'm buying it live. Well, well, we'll chat through. So the so six-man Delta Force team, which is awesome, uh, it comes with a commander, um, the Delta Force scout, three marksmen, uh, sorry, two marksmen, a breacher, which I really like, mm-hmm. and one of my favorites, actually, is the there's a drone operator yeah. that's got a handheld drone. I think that's a, a really nice touch. It allows for some interesting additions and parts to be played within a game system. Most definitely. Yeah, they looked really good. Uh, I had no no doubts or qualms about buying those, so they looked really good. Hey, Marty, good thing uh, this is being recorded because otherwise your wife would be rushing to uh, stop your credit card. <laughs> stop that. I'm, I'm busy buying stuff. Will you leave me alone? <laughs> She's using her credit card. It'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to some World War II action. Yeah. So Plastic Soldier Company, as we know, produces some great kits. And they're continuing with that. Into a, I mean, it's a, it's a period we already know and we already love. Uh, that's the North Africa. So we're seeing them now producing the British 8th Army platoon size. As long as uh, alongside a German one as well, uh, the British one you get as usual a really good selection of minis. You've got eighteen riflemen, three NCOs, four HQ. Uh, you've got walking LMG teams, prone LMG teams, and I really like that you get the choice of the two because mm-hmm. a lot of the time you're kind of locked in with a prone team and you, the rest of your squad's running. You can imagine support fire, but sometimes it's nice to have them walking, patrolling, moving with them. Um, you can also have a prone to uh, two-inch mortar and a walk-in two-inch mortar, which, again, for the same reason, I just love that, that aspect of it. Nice. Uh, on the German front, uh, there's a German platoon amongst them as well. Um, and, you know, it's it's almost, how do I put this? They're almost, the, you're always going to get these two, aren't you? Mm-hmm. But I do wish that we'd see some, or sometimes see, some of the smaller, you know, the Italian units and that sort okay. of fielded a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to say that the the other, some of the other companies now, like uh, I think who's been doing it recently, Flames of War have started to move into a Hungarian starter set. I know it's a while after it all first came out, but it's good to see that they're still populating and they're still moving through the countries that were in the engagements. Um, so I hope that Plastic Soldier Company carries on with this theme and carries into some of the other areas and some of the smaller factions, which I think they will. They're such a big company with such a wide range, and they've done that before. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a good way of keeping moving forward. Are these 15 but, uh, or 28, Gaz, or 20 mil? Uh, these are 20 mils. 20, okay. Zero. So that's kind of that nice ground. It gives you a bit more battle space, but don't lose too much detail if you want the squad-level games. Right. 
Um, so you get 44 miniatures in the German Africa Corps platoon, um, which includes five HQs, three NCOs, 18 riflemen, and then three walking LMGs and three prone LMGs. So a nice basic start set, and I can see them almost immediately going into some of the other areas of the of the German sort of forces um, to sort of bulk this out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd like to see, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the painted minis coming out with the desert rats and, you know, the, the thoughts of Tobruk and the battles. Sort of that, Very cool. That they inspire. Very cool. All right. Moving on, you got a little modern stuff from them as well? Oh, yeah. I, as, you know, we're trying to stick with this company, so it's Plastic Soldier Company still, Battle Group North Ag, mm-hmm. and I was another favourite of the teams. And uh, we're seeing a British Fox Patrol has just been released. So somewhat very different. Uh, this is in their 10mm uh, Ultracast Plastics. Um, for, for want of a better word, they're cute. <laughs> <laughs> They're cute. <laughs> I don't okay. know how Jim would uh, clarify what they were capable of, <laughs> other than cuteness. <laughs> He's probably you ever seen one, one, uh, one of those vehicles in real life? No, I haven't. You, even in a one-to-one scale, they're they're, they're kind of adorable. <laughs> they're cute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> true. I'm sorry, but I've never heard the word cute and adorable used in military vehicles. But um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the Navy they use those terms. The (laughs) Warhol. I can't believe we lasted this long without going there. You know, it's happened long before now. But uh, you've done well today, team. You've held out for quite a long time. (laughs) The the Warhol is a beautiful plane. That's true. (laughs) I I grant that. But it's not adorable, right? But when you see that gun live, it is. It really is. It's effing awesome is what it, it is. Let's just be honest. It's adorable the way some of those bulldog breeds are so freaking ugly. <laughs> so disgusting. So revolting. They somehow come all the way around to become cute again. Somehow, somehow it happens. <laughs> like, like the annual uh, ugliest dog contest? Yeah, but in this case, I mean, it, it's so ugly, it's beautiful type thing, you know? And it's not so much the looks, it's what can it do? It's, yeah, it's the capability. Cause, there, there is a certain, I mean, not an, an aesthetic beauty, but there is an elegance to its design. Yeah. Even when you read about its development, it's like, okay, we built this plane. Here's the airframe. Here are the engines. Here's the pilot. Here are the weapons. Here are those. Okay, we got to put a gun in this thing somewhere. Um, uh, external gun pod, like with the old F4s. No, let's go. With the A-10, here's the gun. Build a plane around right? that. Yeah, make it fly. Yeah, yeah pretty yeah. much. They, they did it completely backwards. And, they didn't uh, do it backwards. They finally did it the right way. <laughs> they finally did it right, yeah. <laughs> and then the Air Force spent 10 years trying to get rid of the thing because they didn't want it. Because uh-huh. uh, it's not fast and sleek. Then a little because it's not a fighter. Right. You know? Then a little thing called Desert Storm happened, and now the Air Force is like, you know what, let's go ahead and hold on to these for a while. Well, they uh, don't like them. They still want to get rid of them. Yeah, and now the they're 40 said years they old. And now, now they said they're going to expand old. them out for another 20, 30 years with the new well, upgrade that, system. Well, when I was in uh, Iraq in uh, the beginning of the war, uh, we were at Talil, and there were two of them flying out of there. And let me tell you, that that made us all feel much, much better. <laughs> the, Army, the Army has always loved the A-10, obviously. Mm-hmm. Even, I'm talking about way back in the 80s when the A-10 was canceled. And 
production stopped and the Air Force moved all their squadrons back to Air Force Reserve, Air Force National Guard, OA-10 unarmed air air, uh, forward air controllers. They were using it as, as forward air controlling aircraft. They were like, what? we don't need tanks. Yeah, look it up. Yeah. Oh, well, you couldn't shoot them down because they had that awesome armor around the cockpit and they, they turned they, out they don't need wings or both engines to fly. <laughs> the Air Force did not. Well, they can't because the, the recoil of the gun equals the thrust of one of its engines. <laughs> so it's better. I'm serious. Like if yeah. you actually like look up the numbers, um, it has from the outset, even without battle damage, the A-10 has to be able to fly with only one engine because every time it fires its gun, it's the equivalent backward force of one of its engines. Yeah. And 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 it's got a minimum uh, speed. It has to be at 195 knots before it can fire. Well, yeah, because it loses half of its thrust the second it fires. Yeah, it stalls. It's gonna, yeah, it'll totally stall. Totally. So, two quick uh, points. The yep. it, Warthog reminds me of the B-17s in World War II. You could hit it, put holes in it, knock wings off of it, and it would still fly and land. So that's what the you know damage on an A-10 reminds me of is the B-17s. And two, I say the A-10 is the official uh, uh, aircraft of SITREP podcast. I have spoken. I thought for sure, I, I thought for sure it would be the, the Blackhawk. Well, as it's much as I love the Blackhawk, you know. It's on all our merchandise. Now we have to redo all our merchandise. Well, you know, that's coming. <laughs> we're re- we're going to redo it. I'm reaching out to Bunker Branding. <laughs> ching, ching, ching. And seeing if we can uh, get some new merchandise done. So we'll see. I, go you know, it would not break my heart if. If there was an A10 uh, branded with Sitrep podcast, <laughs> we'll work on it. We'll work on it. You know, unfortunately, I don't have my graphic artist anymore to help me do it, and I know Jim's really busy, so I, I have no heart to ask him to help. So I will get yes, it I, done. You've you've always had two graphic artists. That's true. I, that's true. But you know, I, I, your primary role was to be the historical guru. So I, I hate to, let you me, know. Let, let me let, let me at least get through Gulf War. Okay. Right. Cool. All right. Now, Sorry. Before we move yeah, off the A10, ahead. two. Unpopular points, but <gasps> if I don't say it, somebody's gonna somebody's gonna say something. Well, obviously the A10 Warthog. Obviously, everyone knows this. That's not its name. Its name is the Thunderbolt Two. Right. It's named after our main World War Two a ground attack aircraft, which again goes to what Chris was talking about before. They had a role for the A10. It wasn't one of these multi-role, you know, smorgensbords like we see like, nowadays, like with the F-35. Mm-hmm. They had an idea of exactly what this plane was going to do up front, and it's baked into the very name, the Thunderbolt II. It's named after the uh, the, uh, the P-47. Yep. And most, I mean, you were talking about, you know, World War II analogs. Most of the real design features out of the A-10 comes out of a Soviet plane. What? What? The IL-2 Sherman. The IL-2 Sherman. No, don't say that. Yes. It's true. Uh, but we right. can look past that. It, you forgot the one big thing about how that I disagree with that I'm, um, uh, uh, where the A-10 is. The A-10 should be with the Army. Damn the Key West agreement. That's true. Um, if, if the if the Army wants to pay that, wants to pay the bill, I don't see why they. I mean, well, the last time the Air Force said they were going to cancel it, the Army said they were going to pick it up. <laughs> oh, and that's probably why the Air Force said, oh, okay, we'll keep it. Yeah. Uh, we, yes, you know, it, would, I, I would, it would not surprise me. At the end of the day, it comes down to a fight over funding. Yeah. Oh, if we pass these A-10s over to the Army, we're going to lose X amount of funding? Okay, no. Yep. Got to go ahead and keep it. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think it's just the Air Force doesn't want us playing with their toys. 
with toys that they don't want. And as far but as what the, the Air Force's the Air Force's posture in the '80s was, um, why is the Army crying about close air support? That's what the Apaches saw. Why did the DOD spend you know billions on the Apache? This brand the Apache was brand spanking new at that time. That's another thing. I mean, for those of us who were in back then, people didn't know if the Apache was going to work in Desert Storm. There was all these fears and worries about sand and the intakes and all this other stuff like that. Um, of course, that was proven not true. Um, Gaz can probably speak more. As, you know. as Gaz can tell you, it's the most reliable rotary wing aircraft <laughs> ever developed. You are. Well, your version might be. No, ours is actually a good bit of kit when it flies. When it's not flying for a long period, it has a lot of gremlins. Well, I've recently uncovered a DOD document that actually does go into this. So when General Dynamics and Hughes and Raytheon and all these other subcontractors actually come out with a dozen AH-64s, they put them through their paces, and the one that performs the least is the one that gets sent over to the UK. So yeah, I, I, I mean, which is why we stripped out the drive, stripped out the engines, and built it <laughs> There you go. Um, it almost sounds so, like the Marines. security for you. Well, you know? uh, Sounds like the Army giving the stuff lot. to the Marines. We do it the same thing to the Brits, huh? Just, just, well, I was totally kidding about all that. Um, <laughs> no, the Marines just, they, they, again, okay, the Marines have a seat on the Joint Chiefs. There's a Marine, you know, general, force or general on the Joint Chiefs. We are a fourth branch of the service, but yeah. we don't have a department. There's no department of the Marine Corps. And funding gets done, you know, from Senate appropriations and armed forces and all that stuff down to the departments. So we always have table scraps from the Navy. There is no Department of the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is part of the Department of the Navy. So when it comes to appropriations, it's always, you know, we are the our, the Marines are the least funded. Of, number one, they're the smallest. But even, you know, per capita, they've always been, the, you know, the, 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 the cheapest force. Um, they have to be. Also, the Marines are very, very specific about certain, uh, um, you know, mission. You know, the Marines have a very, very specific mission or mm-hmm. set of missions, uh, and they, they only stick with equipment that goes with that mission. And they're getting rid of tanks. They're talking about it, yeah. Um, I, it kind of makes sense because it's time. You know what? It's high time the Marines stop having to do the Army's job, man. Oh, we don't need he got one in. Tank, no, he's absolutely <laughs> right, though. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, and that's and it's not an. I don't think that's an army or marine thing. I think that the powers that be at echelons above reality are like, well, we'll just give the marines tanks, and then they can do it too. So we'll use them over here, and we'll use right. the army over here. You know, one of the one of the top marine thing. I don't want to take the whole podcast on this. One of the top marine things is like global strategic power production. They have to be able to get a marine expeditionary uh, brigade or force, you know, anywhere in the world, like as soon as the president picks up the phone mm-hmm. and um, the M1 Abrams, she is a high maintenance hoe. I mean, oh my God, having a Marie, having an Abrams, having the Abrams in your order of battle means you have to have this, you have to have that, you have to have this for every single Abrams you have in your force. You have 12 other vehicles, maintenance shops, seven levels of, uh, seven echelons of maintenance. It's a nightmare well, and it, it really slows down your ability to quickly well, power Plus, they weigh seventy tons piece, so you know you got to move yeah. them, bad boys. <laughs> it, it's, it's in the name. It's in the name, Marine Corps. It's water, and Abrams don't float. So <laughs> it doesn't right. work. Well, you, you you need a tanker for all the fuel it'll use. Oh yeah, and then you know repair vehicles and specialists and but it's I, very very. It's a very now you know 
that tank will perform for you like literally no other tank on Earth because it has triple the, ta- the price tag of any other tank on Earth. All respect to the Challenger 2, the Leopard 2, and everything else. But um, it's because, you know, it has to have the American logistics system behind it. Yeah. And if you're either the Marine Corps, which doesn't have that much resource, doesn't have that kind of resources, or to kind of expand the question a little bit, all these other client states, the number of nations that use M1 Abrams nowadays, Saudi Arabia has them, Qatar has them, Kuwait has them, Egypt has thousands of them, Iraq has them now. Um, when these guys get actually into combat and the, the Abrams, like the first little computer chip in the Abrams breaks down or one of those fuel lines and the turbine breaks down, where who are you going to call? Because don't call Ghostbusters. You know? <laughs> they don't have that gigantic, you know, uh, you know, seven to one, 12 to one, um, you know, maintenance, logistical, uh, POL, you know, all that, all that support uh, infrastructure behind it. So that's where it's going to get, uh, we're going to see how the, how the M1 really does. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one thing from personal experience. Um, I am so happy that we do have it because having to call that thing in for uh, um, support after you've been attacked, when that thing rolls in fast and pissed, Oh, you battle's over. Invincible. Yeah. There, there is again. Leopard two and Challenger two are like close runners, but they, you know, the A, the M one Abrams will cost two or three times as much, and but it will only be like maybe one point two, one point five times as good as these other front runners. But nevertheless, if it's a tank versus a tank, or if it, a God forbid, if, if you're some kind of insurgent force, or you know, some kind of enemy infantry force. I mean, we're looking at the kill rates uh, for the writing we're doing for, for Gulf War. I mean, I, I almost can't call it that. It almost isn't a kill rate because no ABs were lost, uh, at least in Gulf 1, to direct enemy action. Mm-hmm. Um, some were lost in uh, accidents and some were damaged to the point where they had, they had a way to be written off. But as far as, like, vehicle kills, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not finding any examples so far. And on the other side, well, I'll tell you what, there are thousands, thousands. But Medina oh, Ridge. At, at, that's several hundred tanks. El Bushaya, um, uh, Ramail oil fields. There's just huge numbers. Huge numbers. Well, and M- M1 versus uh, infantry or uh, motorized troops. <laughs> yeah, the only the only question there becomes if, if you've got the M1 in a city and they go up against infantry with RPGs, IEDs, and God forbid, you know, something else. Mm-hmm. Um that's where you start to see some of the M1 losses that we have seen in Iraq, uh, but, the second Iraq war. But, so, we stay, so then we have we, we go to the Tusk, which is Tank Urban Survival Kit, which is supposedly to uparm it specifically in our in urban combat. And this goes back to why the Marines are getting rid of tanks in the first place. It's okay. Why are you sending tanks into cities? Well, that's where eighty percent of the wars are happening nowadays, and we talk about this a hundred times before, so I won't labor the point, but. Um, I, as warfare I, becomes more and more and more uh, urban, is there going to become a less and less of a, of a use for tanks in general, especially with the Marine Corps? What I was going to say, though, is there is a psychological factor when you have a M1 Abrams come screaming and looking for a fight or joining a fight. Yeah, you always have the psychological factor of a big hunk of metal coming in so no coming in at 70 miles an hour right shooting right <laughs> yeah. hitting gas yeah 35 40 miles an hour certainly it, it's uh it's impressive gas would you yep. like to finish the news sir 
<laughs> I, I could just finish it there and we could just move on to the topics and I can carry the other items over to next week. Oh, that's fine. We could do that. Because, um, yeah, just, just to keep us on sort of the right sort of time frame. All right. I think, uh, no worries. I'll carry what's left of the news into the next podcast. Okay, sounds we good. Wrecked, we wrecked Gaz's time. That was the guys. longest news that's, segment that's we've ever done. That wasn't news. Sorry, what? <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> All right, that so just crawled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start it off uh, with the talking points I came up with. So, as you know, this past June, Thursday, was it Thursday? I think it was Thursday, was the anniversary of Rorik's Drift and Islain Wana. Um, like I mentioned earlier, um, I played Victoria Cross. We did the Rorik's Drift scenario uh, from Victoria Cross 2. It's a game from Worthington Publishing. I backed it on Kickstarter. Um, it is not a hex encounter game. Uh, it uses counters, but it uses zones. So each zone, you know, is like your field of fire or your line of sight. Um, I played the British. Uh, my son Jesse played the Zulus. I barely hit, held out to turn 16. Uh, you get 16 turns to hold out to. Um, or was it 14? 16. Um, you get eight during the day and eight at night. So obviously darkness affects your ranges and stuff. It's a very good system. Uh, very fast play. Once you understand how to play it. Um, I felt there was a couple little minor things that, you know, kind of restrictive, but for playability, I understand why they did it. Some was like some of the line of sights is like, you couldn't go on an angle at some aspects and you can't move diagonal. You can only move forward or sideways with the way the zones are set up, which I understood. We did get a rule wrong. Uh, I think it was mostly my part. So you can accuse me of cheating if you want. It wasn't intentional. Um, if you have a Zulu leader in with your band of warriors, you get two movement points versus one and you can't um, go across a barrier like the melee bags or the actual walls with the added point of the leader. So you have to like move up to the wall and then stop and the next turn move over the wall. I misread the rule because the way it was worded, I thought you couldn't cross the walls unless you had a leader, which seemed really stupid in the later part of the game because I had killed all four of his leaders. Um, so they were like stuck at the wall and they're like, that doesn't make sense. And Jesse's like, that doesn't make sense. So we reread the rule and went, oh, and then we continued on from there. So... Um, I think it captured the flavor of the game or the event really well. Uh, you had, you know, a damage scenario for the hospital burning, you know, retrieving uh, the wounded out of the hospital. You got, you prevented victory points to Zulu for capturing them. Um, you know, you couldn't avoid the hospital from burning down. That's, there was no way to avoid that portion. Uh, it was just a matter how long it would take to do it. So it was a really good game. If you're looking for something like that, it's definitely worth picking up. It takes a few hours to play. Uh, it would probably only have taken us maybe two hours to play once we knew how to do it, you know, but we were learning as we were playing it. So it was a lot of uh, fun. It's a good game. Um, beautiful map board. Um, you know, it's not overly decorative, but it, you would definitely get the feel of it. And um, very simple um, counters. So everybody moves one unless you had a leader and then British had volley fire, which tripled your shots. And so it, you know, once I, I posted some pictures on Facebook and there was one of the initial setup of the British and you look at him it's like, man, that is really thin, you know, all ringing the uh, outer perimeter of the drift uh, um, of the station there. And 
you know, you think about all those Zulus that are coming down, there's like no way to hold this off. And and it it really makes you think about where to put your people and where to move. So it's a really good game. Uh, shifting channels here a little bit. So I just want to talk real quick about some upcoming videos. Uh, we're going to be doing some video reviews. I feel that this is something that's been long overdue. And we're going to do some video reviews. Um, we're doing one for Ultra Combat Modern, the rulebook. Now, these are not game reviews. Those will come later. Um, these are actually just the review of the book. Whether it's laid out nicely, does the rules make sense? You know, there'll be five different criteria. Um, so it won't be an actual review of the playability of the game. That will come as a let's play. We'll review it after we play in action. So like when we do the Ukraine table, we'll do a review afterwards. So this is just, is this book worth getting? Is it easy to read? Does it, you know, lay out nicely? That's, the, that's what this review is. So we have one for Ultra Combat Modern. I will do a comparison also of Ultra Combat Normandy, uh, which was the book that came out before the modern version. And then another video we're going to do of a review of Terrain Essentials by Mel Bowes. Um, also, um, like I said, we'll do, probably do a Let's Play of the Victoria Cross. There's a few other uh, rule books I'm going to review. One of them is called Hind Commander, H-I-N-D, the Hind, the Russian helicopter. It is a rule set that's designed for helicopter and aerial combat, um, and you can do ground forces, in it. but it's scaled for two, three, and six millimeter miniatures. So um, we'll do a review of that book, and then we'll do a, a, a video game of uh, those as well. We'll do a video Let's Play. So that's what I've got. Gaz, what you got for us, sir? Um, so something that I was thinking about the other day um, was putting together uh, just a test table. And looking at the objective markers I use, uh, I began to question why do I just use an objective marker rather than, you know, from your bits box or from stuff that's online, stuff that you can buy from stores, having an objective marker that helps the immersion on tabletop. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at a lot of the game systems uh, people are currently playing, a lot of them are having to be solo. So trying to immerse yourself in the game as much as possible, I think is a good way of doing it. Right. And I mean, these can be simple from a reach and extraction point where you just have a smoke marker. That could be something as simple as a cotton bud on a base, you know, spray a bit of black on it, whatever you want to do, put it red. So you've got that marker and that's where you get into to a casualty, you know, to an arms package, to, to whatever really. But mm -hmm. we, I think... It's, I don't know if it's a case of overlooking it or if it's something I've been lazy with, but looking through the games that I now have and those that need objective markers, I'm starting to find a little bit of you know hobby and creative juice flow just from thinking about, well, I could do that, and that would be quite a nice little objective marker. Most games have maybe six, so that gives me options to do six different things. Um, and I was wondering if any of you guys have ever really thought about the objectives of your games being something that, that visually matters mm -hmm. rather than just something that you place and it's just a, well, it's not, it's a nothing really. It's just a literally a mark on the table. Right. Yeah. No, I, I personally have thought about it because, you know, some games you use basically like a poker chip or a base, right? Something to say, this yeah. is a victory point. You know, you, whoever captures this, that's a victory point. And it does kind of take away from the immersion of the, of the game by having just, a token, you know, whereas if, um, say, you know, 
say you're doing Mogadishu, you could have, you know, obviously the Blackhawk down, you could have, um, you know, a wrecked vehicle, whatever the case may be. If you make it so it fits into the, the scenario or the terrain or, you know, whatever you're doing, I think that's a whole bunch better than just having, oh, here's your victory point or here's your, you know, capture point or whatever. And it's just a token. You know, a lot of games will give you like paper tokens or, you know, a chit that says victory point or, you know, capture point or whatever. So I personally like the idea of hobbying uh, a little scenario, you know, a terrain piece to be, be your objective points. Cool. Take note of that, Marty, just for future game building. <laughs> yeah, but, hey. Absolutely. <laughs> Guys, you got a 3D printer, so you have no of- excuse. You can. Oh, I don't up. have an excuse anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, and a, and a lot of times it's just a matter of uh, putting something that's appropriate to the scenario on, on a, a you know on a little base. Yeah, you know, so it's it's not terribly difficult to to do, and you know, like Gaz says, I think it really adds to uh, the level of the uh, immersion to to the game. You know, so uh, you know, you find something that you think goes along with whatever scenario you're you're playing and you know, it, it's not a huge outlay of, of time or money to, to do something like that. And I think it really does enhance, uh, you know, the gameplay and uh, the immersion, you know, the feel of the scenario. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've already, like when I play Battle Space, that's what I do for my objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good video. That. I must admit as well, it sort of led me on to thinking about another part of the game that we rarely see happen, and that is to go into a hot zone. So something already set up in an engagement with something going into the engagement. So I don't know, an ambush patrol for a battle space moving through, you know, one of the compounds or a group of compounds. So the vehicle should already be destroyed. The guys should already be by there. There should be a team already engaged that's got casualties. And then a second team, you know, goes in in a Mastiff or whatever to try and put the firepower down, suppress the enemy forces to pull the team out. So actually a different level of immersion and a a level of haste. So your turns are actually the turns before you're overwhelmed rather than just two forces setting up, facing off very, um, I don't know, old school really, two lines of infantry and all that. Um, Rarely do we start the game hot. We always seem to go in cold and we find you lose a first turn and just moving around a lot mm-hmm. of it, you know? So maybe we could look at applying that to some of the game systems we're going to review, some of the videos that we're going to do where we play it as we should, but then also maybe house rule where you start engaged and a second team comes in to assist. There you go. Guys, I don't know about you, but it sounds like Gaz just created a scenario he needs to write up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I can do that. Well, and for battle uh, space, that's... that's you know, 90% of what Gaz just said is, I think, mission one in the book. You know, where yeah, they start right. with the Humvee. Is that one or two? I don't yeah, that's one. one. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, there's already a, a damaged Humvee. You have to find out if there's any survivors in there. And then uh, if there are, you have to extract the survivor and uh, exfil with him. So, uh, yeah, you, you can certainly uh, add on to that. Uh, particular scenario there's not a whole lot you would need to do but as get said adding that uh, element to some of our other games yeah that could be cool i'm sorry jim what were you gonna say there are pitfalls to this uh-oh here we go um from a game design perspective i'm okay. not saying it can't be done they're just things to look out for 
Um, when you start off with the battle already um, already joined, there are some Panzer leader scenarios to do this, Arab-Israeli wars, Valor and Victory. Um, it's all fine. The issue is setup becomes insanely important um, because the fo- you already start off with enemy forces and the enemy forces already start off with your forces in line of sight, under fire, uh, and so on. Um, that's the reason why most scenarios avoid this and start cold, as um, as Gaz was saying. Because when you start off with units already in contact, unless you have some sort of alternating setup system, which you can do, or very, very specific um, parameters in your scenario design, um, one force gets wiped out almost immediately. It comes down to a couple die rolls on turn one, and the game is effectively, if, if not over, already decided. Mm-hmm. To where one side or the other now has a hopeless hill to climb. Um, so, some, so, so again, uh, an alternating setup mechanic, like I set up a fire team, you set up a fire team so that no side gets to just set up. And then the other side gets to set up around them almost in a circle. I'm being extreme here and, and hyperbolic, but you know, if it's a traditional setup style, well, defender sets up first, attacker sets up first, force A is already in contact, force B enters on turn two or on turn one. Okay, force A is going to set up in enfilade fire positions on high ground, shooting right down the side of the neck of uh, the enemy force or whatever, um, especially if you have more power gamers or competitive gamers doing these scenarios. And poof, there goes the game. Um, the secondary pitfall to that is that if you have that with um, if, if you counter that first problem with very strict sort of setup conditions in your scenario, okay, this fire team has to set up here, this GPMG sets up over there. Now what you're going to damage is replayability value um, for the scenario because the scenario always starts the same way. The first and second crucial fire phases always go the same way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I totally get it. It makes for you know a faster game start. Um, you get to play the rescue force. You get to play the cavalry. You get to play the reinforcements that kind of save the day. You are probably not going to take most of the uh, casualties as the rescue force because most of the real beat up is going to be the guys that are already pinned down and you know they need assistance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definite benefits to it. There's just a couple things to look out for. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Perspective. That it, that does make sense. You know, it, it is. If you don't do it right and set it up right, it's going to be a very lopsided game and it's not going to be very fun because one player is going to get his ass handed to him and, you know, that's that. So, no, you make some very good points, which is a good segue into your topic, Jim. Guys there? I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I think what we just heard is we need to we need to uh, test play some of the, some of those just to see if we can work it out into something that's actually playable. Yeah, well, like you said, battle space is a good example, and I think that was what was that the scenario you did use in the. It is. Yeah, to to go with, and I know that's the example he uses in the uh, the video that's available on YouTube. Um, yeah, I think so, that's mission one in the book. I think that's, that's why we went with it. Sounds like Martin needs to do a role review of uh, the book there. So, well, and that scenario definitely seemed to play well in your video, Marty. That's for sure, Marty. Uh, Marty and Chris. Yeah, and uh, you know, with uh, with battle space in particular. So that's just rule one from the main or uh, mission one from the main rule book. Uh-huh. Uh, he he also has a uh, an expansion for Navy SEALs. Uh, and, uh, last week, yeah, last week, I think, uh, 
there is a fan-based expansion uh, called Covert Ops. Uh, so, I mean, there's more and more material uh, coming out for uh, for that particular game system, and, and there's lots of lots of things you can do. So, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll any, definitely any have to. Game, any game worth a box that comes in has to let you build your own scenarios, right? I mean, that's like super obvious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? It just real quick, Jim, before you you segue into your uh, rules bashing. Um, you know, this whole thing where everybody's putting out these expanded rules for covert ops or spec ops how about one for civil affairs how about the after effect you know right chris how about one for civil nobody affairs? wants to walk around with a clipboard and count sewers <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the problem with that is a it's not fun and b uh trying to gain the uh, second and third order of effects on something. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard enough trying to just do it in real life. We're um, at Chris's expense. He's uh, with civil affairs in the army. So, you know, it's, it's my point really is, is, you know, not everything has to be covert ops or special ops. You know, it, it could be just other missions, you know, infantry, standard infantry, whatever. Uh, I sometimes I wonder if we we go a little too far on the special ops because it's exciting and whatever. So I very 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 rarely do any kind of special operations. Yeah. Granted, I, I'm doing special operations Jim. later today. You're a yeah. traditionalist, Jim. Okay. See, last show you called me a rebel. This show you're calling me a traditionalist. <laughs> you got to figure out where I am here on your spectrum. <laughs> he means the same thing with both words. It's yeah, weird. <laughs> But, Bill, I do have to agree with you. One of the things that games don't really take into account, if you're talking about the civil affairs stuff, if we're not talking about after the war, if we're talking about during the war, uh-huh. um, we don't take enough, you don't see enough impact that the civilians play on a battlefield. Um, you know, we, we, we may not see enough, but we do see it. Uh, all of our Valorant Victory Moderns games, the Valorant Victory Moderns expansion I'm writing for 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 board game geek totally has civilians in it. Yeah, well, I, I think God, Chris is God referring to more mainstream people. stuff right now. You know, the stuff that's out right now. Well, and, and I'm not familiar with those rules yet, Jim. But you know, you've got a you've got a major war going on. You know, your civilians are going to be clocking up your main supply route, and you know, Marty as an MP, he's going to be, you know trying to get these people off the road and civil affairs. We're trying to get them off the road and move them, you know, secondary roads, but the secondary roads are Ooh. blocked as well. Ooh, Jim, there is uh, a modern rule set that uh, member contact front. Contact front, uh, follow the Reich for yeah. battle group, um, force on force. There are games out there that handle civilians. Yeah, force most- on force has news crews. There, there, yeah, civilians, the effect of civilians we talked about this in the Vietnam series where it's like, okay, where is the news crew yeah. on the battlefield? The news crew is an actual movable unit, usually controlled by the Vietnamese player to make sure that it's always in the absolute most inconvenient spot. Uh, victory point penalties for American killed, civilian killed, and so on and so forth count double if they take place within a certain radius of the, right. of the news camera because they took a picture of that and that's now being beamed into the new living rooms. You know, the whole the wars won on the battlefield and lost on television. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there's enough, there maybe needs to be more, but it's definitely out there. Yeah. Okay. Not just the well, and I, I think that, uh, 
you know, uh, kind of a, a way to incorporate that and really get the flavor of it if we wanted to would be not so much a single game, but a uh, kind of a, a campaign at some level where the effects of the first battle uh, affect the, the second battle and mm-hmm. you have incorporated the civilians, you know, okay, great. You liberated them air quotes. Uh, okay. But you know, did, did you destroy their town and now they're all pissed at you, you know, something like that. You know, yeah. there's lots of uh, effects that uh, you could put into, into place or, you know, you know, now they're all uh, insurgents or whatever. Yeah. You know, there's, expanded, there's all- um, an expanded version of what we had for uh, the transit game. Yes. Where it's like the, the, yes. the, the mood of the street. Yeah. That was tactical. That was minute to minute. But if you do that, like between games, like you were saying in a campaign game, okay, last game was, you know, X amount of victory points for the, uh, the government player, Americans, British, whoever, um, the, the, the first world forces player. However, they also racked up X amount of collateral damage points. Okay. That's going to affect the role. Um, maybe you can uh, affect that role by having certain units in your uh, order of battle. Battle group is great at this. They make you, or they don't make you, they offer certain units that you can buy and it costs points. And you're like, why am I buying this? It does nothing. It does nothing. It does nothing. Oh, it has an effect. It doesn't have the pew pew and the bang bang, but holy shit balls. Is that going to have an effect on refugees on whether or not you can communicate with your artillery on this, on that, on the other thing. So you could have, and that sort of a thing, pay 10 points and have a silver civil affairs unit in your unit, uh, in your order of battle. And for every civil affairs unit in your order of battle, now again, you may spend too many points on this, you get a plus one on that roll between turns, or between games. That says, okay, yeah, we had too much collateral damage, but we deployed, you know, three civil affairs teams and, and, and the Army Corps of Engineers and so on and so forth. They came in, they dug ditches, they put in new sewers, they built a new school, they built a new hospital. The Red Cross is in here, you know, inoculating children. We're handing out peanut butter and MREs. Okay, they're a little less pissed at us now. Or even with all that, they're still pissed off at us. You know, there are ways, I'm not saying any game out there really does a good job at it, but there are ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And it could also let the, uh, let the player that's playing the uh, insurgents or the enemy, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, based on the results of the previous game, uh, give them an increased recruiting so that they get more dudes of, uh, uh, you know, more insurgents come in because, you know, this is the, the hotbed. You, you piss people off. So, you know, now they're, now the local populace is gone from passive support to active support of the, the bad guys. Yep, and that then you start leveraging uh, psyop. You know, now the one thing with you know, let's say you don't have a civil affairs team, well, you just lost one of your uh, infantry platoons because they're setting up a IDF camp or uh, IDP camp, internally uh, displaced persons, right? yeah, which you know put them in harm's way in a spot they probably should have been. Or yeah, we some of your you know combat effectiveness because they're doing crap that they shouldn't be doing. Because you spent more points, and this is how again, uh, I don't pretend to know a lot about this in the real field applications, but as a game designer, that's where it come. That's kind of how that gets reflected, albeit in something of an abstract way. Yeah, these. Um, other units, Army Corps of Engineers, Red Cross, well, that's not really a unit, but Civil Affairs unit, things like that, these cost points out of a budget. And for every unit of, you know, all this other stuff that you're buying, that's one less mortar team. That's one less Apache strike. That's one less drone uh, with Hellfire missiles on it or whatever, you know. So, yeah, your combat effectiveness is going down with the more of this 
you know, more soft power kind of a deployment that you're doing. Yeah. Well, and I really like what, you know, kind of what you just brought up uh, as far as the, the NGOs having a, having a role to play, because you don't really see that in any of our game systems, I don't think. You know, not the, not the ones I'm familiar with, not that I know a whole lot. But, uh, you know, that, that could be a really unique element because, as you say, it takes away from your combat power, per se. But, uh, you know, it could be, you know, how you are able to build uh, uh, goodwill and uh, make it a uh, safe environment for your troops in that area so they can go on to battle uh, the next one further down the road kind of thing. It's never been presented, uh, to my knowledge, in this particular flavor, but in operational scale games, level three games, I've seen similar stuff. I've designed similar stuff. And the, the pitfall for the player is that you can over-invest in it. Um, things like, you know, partisan activity behind the enemy line. Oh, I get 20 points to spend per turn to remobilize my units, strategically redeploy my units to, you know, remobilize units that were destroyed last turn. I'm going to save this many units for air defense. Oh, the enemy didn't attack me from the air, so I wasted all those points. Or this many points on partisans, or this many points on combat engineering, on this many points on, you know, the stuff that isn't like directly movable tactical combat power on the field in a, you know, an actual tactical unit. Uh, in the game um there's all this like this uh sort of what's the word um non-directly uh depicted um you know support assets or other battlefield effects political support you know things like that and um it's always good to put some money into it but again if you put too much point too much into it um, that's when you have these adverse effects. You've overinvested in that, and now that means you have less money to spend on other actions. And then before you know it, you know that platoon that was trying to set up a, you know, uh, a, a refugee center uh, got taken out. Or if you have, you know, oh, so many points you spent on, um, you know, outreach programs, you spent that much less on security. That's going to give the insurgent player a bonus next turn. Um, I've seen games do this on a very, very uh, not but to this flavor or whatever, not trying to uh, recreate this particular kind of mechanic, but on things like partisans versus security force, U-boats versus submarines, strategic bombing versus air defense. Um, it's going to have the same mathematics to it uh, and the same you know benefits and pitfalls and so on. But um, yeah, I, so from a design perspective, it wouldn't be that hard. It would just, I think you hit the nail on, on the head earlier. It has to be some kind of a campaign game. Or if not a campaign game of strung together tactical games, one big operational game. Like where your battlefield map, your actual game map is like all of Afghanistan. Okay, you are now the four-star general in charge of Afghanistan. Each turn is a month and you get 12 months. Okay, can you make the situation better in the year 2011 or 2006 or who knows what? And like each scenario that comes with the game would be a different year with different objectives. 2002 might be capture bin Laden. 2003 might be calm down the Taliban. 2004 might be, you know, something else. And uh, it's, it's going to have to be that larger scale game because that kind of stuff doesn't happen in the time scales that, in an individual battlefield. Um, right. It's going to be like between battles. Yeah. Well, yes, yes and no. Um, you know, you were talking about the point system and stuff like that. First off, everything is a, is a balance, right? Um, and I have to say the, the biggest war game, um, I've been part of is when you do a division level warfighter, um, activity. Um, and then this is with the, with the army and 
it's impressive. You're, you're, you've got thousands of people and millions of dollars involved in this. Um, but what you see them do to the combat um, leadership and their staff and the amount of stuff that they have to juggle um, is impressive. And the one thing that I, I did take away from a couple of the warfighters and stuff that I was in is, you know, the combat guys, they want to do combat. They just want to do combat. And, you know, they're good at it. They, they want to run, jump, fight, and kill. And the, the thing the big army is doing is trying to make them understand, yeah, you can do that. But every action you do has a reaction. You know, you're going too fast, you're, you know, causing this damage. Or, you know, you, you're ignoring this tanker that turned over. Well, the more you ignore it, the harder it's going to be in the game for you because they're going to make it a bigger thing, you know, if you don't just take care of it right away. There's a lot of stuff that you have to do to, to balance that stuff out, especially in a fast-moving war. So, um, but it is impressive. It is absolutely impressive. So, Jim, do you want to close this out with your topic there about rules and uh, kit bashing, or as you put it, rules bashing? We've kind of been hitting on that already with this discussion, um, you know, about people homebrewing or, you know, adjusting rules. So why don't you lead us through that? Uh, yeah, super fast, because I spent too much time earlier talking about tanks. <laughs> um but, uh, yeah, honestly, it was just, you know, we had this game uh, this last week, uh, Wednesday. Uh, check it out on YouTube if you haven't already, where we've refought part of the Battle of al Kafji in 15mm. We actually had a, a real-life 15mm uh, miniatures game video it awesome. um, on our channel. Yeah, it looked really oh, good, cool, Jim. thanks. We have um, part two coming out this, uh, this Wednesday coming up. Now, the system I use for that, I, I sort of adapted Battle Group originally by Iron Fist Publishing. I think now Plastic Soldier Company has some rights um, from World War II. And immediately the questions come up. Why didn't you use Oil Wars? Why didn't you use Team Yankee? You know, why didn't you use Northag? You could have technically used Northag for this. I mean, you'd have to make up your own units because Northag hasn't come out with, you know, U.S. Marine units yet or any kind of American units to my knowledge. But I had to make up, you know, units anyway, because uh, obviously Battle Group is a World War II game, and I had, you know, 1991 Marines versus Iraqi Third Armored Division and Al Kafji. So again, yeah, like you said, we've kind of been hitting on this already. Um, if anyone had any thoughts, and apparently we do, um, <laughs> as far as making up your own rules for a game, and at what point do your house rules become the majority and the original rules are almost an afterthought? Mm -hmm. At what point does the, uh, does the original game die? How much is too much um, when it comes to uh, rules bashing? Like I say like kit bashing, when you make a miniature and it's like, oh, I'm going to put a new rocket on him. I want to give him a new weapon. You know, rules bashing is I'm going to take this rule set and adopt it and change it and, and, you know, fix it to my specific purpose. Right. Um, does, does anyone do that? If so, how much? And then finally, how much is too much, if there is such a thing? I think, honestly, you know, if everybody's going to be truthful, after you've played a certain game or system for a while, I think everybody in some aspect kit bashes or rule bashes. Because, let's be honest, there is not a perfect rule system out there where, you don't go, walk away from it at some point going, gee, I wonder, I wish they did this, or I wish it did this, you know? 
So at some point, everybody does some house rules, unless you're just a really black and white personality. And, you know, this is the rule. That's how we play it. You can't play it any other way. I do know a couple people like that, but well, I want to say. Well, a tournament setting, then, yeah, you have yeah. to go by gospel chapter and verse right out of the book. Right. But, um, you know, anybody who spends any time with the system, you know, even if it's their favorite system, I know that they're not playing it 100% as the rule is written. They find things they need to adapt to their, you know, play style, their scenario, or something that just makes the game flow better. You know, otherwise, why would there be a second edition, third edition, et cetera, et cetera? Because, you know, there's always going to be changes. And some of those changes and additions come from players who homebrew stuff as they streamline processes. And, you know, sometimes for me, I will homebrew something or kit bash something so it speeds up the play of the game because you find like some things get so bogged down. It's like that's it doesn't it's not fun. So, you know, there are a lot of different I think most people will tailor it to what makes sense for them. I think you can also carry this into forces and units. Uh, Jim, I think it was probably three or four weeks ago now, I think you were playing one of the um, the Sunday games. And I think one of the units, you'd, you'd punch their stats a little bit up because you felt that the, the weapon in question in the original stats didn't really reflect how powerful it actually was. I want to say it was one of the, the Vietnam games. Um, I can't remember the exact weapon, to be honest. Um, we were taught, me and Piotr were talking about uh, yeah. the, the, the 2.0 centimeter flat gun. We did a assault on Monte Casino. That was the one. Yeah. And my, uh, yeah, I'm looking, I'm like, okay, I've got a, tw- I'm, it's like I'm an actual German commander right now. I'm going to put my 20 millimeter flak over here to support my, my right wing. I'm going to set up this. I'm going to set up that. You know, I don't even look at the stats. I don't game it. I'm just like, if I was an actual German infantry commander, false major commander conducting this ass- assault, this is how I would do it. And then I try to put it in practice and halfway through the stream, I'm like, ha, 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 I'm now going to fire my 2.0 centimeter, you know, automatic <laughs> cannon. We've all seen this scene in Private Ryan. It's literally taking the heads off of American paratroopers trying to climb that Tiger tank. That's the weapon I'm talking about. Um, and then I look at the stat and I'm like, it only does what? What are you high? Oh my! No, this thing is like it's was it shooting little little Nerf darts? You see, like kids play with them. Come on, man! And I mean, we went ahead because the counter was already printed and the game was half over by that point. But I was like, dude. So I'm not going to change the value in the middle of the game. That's like super cheesy. But if I reran that game, or I'll tell you what, when I remake that counter, I'm going to take the old automobile <laughs> jack to that little uh, that little number and get. Jack it up just just a tad because it, it was um, it had a longer range, but it made that twenty millimeter flat gun. If you guys know what I'm talking about, if you haven't seen it, um, watch Saving Private Ryan when they're when, near the end where they're assaulting that Tiger tank and the Germans wheel that light piece of artillery around their flank and they open fire and they wipe out like a, a whole squad of marine I'm not marine I'm, of uh, paratroopers like in one go. Mm-hmm. That's the automatic twenty millimeter cannon I'm talking about. That thing had a firepower of three. The same three that a Browning 30 caliber has, the same three that an MG42 has, and I'm like, hell no, man. Yeah. Yeah. It did give it a longer range because it's a heavier shell, but nah. That does seem a bit underpowered. Yeah. So I think you see that at almost every level in games. I think there's always something that's not quite right. You might house rule it. You'll very rarely stick all, oh, you might just not take it, which is kind of disappointing because then you start to limit 
you know, what you would choose based on the rules rather than, because they don't reflect what it is rather than the actual miniatures and the, and the scenario that you're playing. I think we all, we all do. Where it goes too far. I don't know. I think if you, if you're happy playing and your opponent's happy playing, I think you've not taken it too far. Unless you bring UFOs into it. No, there's a place for them as well. War of the Worlds would be quite an interesting game. I'd love to see the Thunder Child in miniature form. No, I, I think, you know, you, you you adapt rules to make it fun to play a game, you know, unless it's just so out there that, you know, it takes away from the immersion or the reality, if you will, or Yeah, the there's going to be a point. Like, I was using a World War II system for Gulf War. Can you use a World War II system for Gulf War? Well, yes and no. You could in this one because it was kind of the B team versus the B team. I mean, no, no, I'm not going to slam the U.S. Marine Corps here, but it was U.S. Marine LAV-25s versus T-55s. The guns kind of make sense. You can kind of squeeze that into the battle group math. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, Challenger 2s and M1A2s versus T-80s, T-90s, T- the, the new T-14s. You know, it's the same general period, um, but at the same time, there's values and then there's values. So, like, T-55 has a 100-millimeter gun. The Soviets had 100-millimeter guns at the end of World War II. Pick up Fall of the Reich, look at a couple stats, you've got it. It's fine. The LAV has a 25-millimeter, you know, Bushmaster on it. Well, the Germans had, you know, uh, 2-centimeter guns, automatic cannon. The Soviets had 37-millimeter guns. You've got it. It's fine. 120 millimeter smooth bores firing, you know, silver bullets. Okay, nobody had that in World War II. Tow missiles get got a little weird, you know, and everything else like that. Mm-hmm. So as far as like changing a system to where it can totally play in a different period, can be done to a point. Um, we are reaching sort of the end of Valorant victory, where I'm expanding Valorant victory further and further and down the line historically. Once we get into the early 2020s, where every single squad has a squad automatic weapon or light machine gun in it, every single, not squad, sorry, fire team, every fire team has a, has a grenade launcher, you, the, the, the cracks are beginning to spread, yeah. and you're not going to be able to push that too much further. Um, you know, you, you, in other words, you couldn't use a Napoleonic black powder system in World War II. I mean, by the time you made all the changes necessary, the game has completely morphed out of uh, any kind of recognition, and you might as well just write your own game at that point. Right. Um, so, again, there are limits. Um, it's just, you know, where the limits are. It's a little bit of a question. Well, and I think you kind of hit on one of the limits there, Jim, is, uh, you know, if you're going to play with someone, you have to be able to explain the rules to them. And if you're using a published rule set and then you uh, – decided to house rule half of the rules well yeah you have to be able to transmit that to the to the other guy and uh, you send the guy the pdf rules like okay this is what we're going to be using except ignore all that shit (laughs) yeah take out (laughs) take out half the pages and here's some notes we're going to do this instead Uh, i will admit i run across that problem in panzer leader i'm like here are the rules but these aren't the rules we're going to be using so don't worry about it you know it's uh yeah It, 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 it does get tough you know, so that I, I can imagine that reaches the, the point of diminishing returns at some point where it, uh, it becomes so unwieldy that it's just hard to to do with someone else that's not familiar with the system. So bringing a new player in becomes challenging. Absolutely. So do you just call that house errata? 
Um, yeah, there are. Um, I'll just type up a, a list, like a bullet list of rule changes that I can send to people. Like, okay, use this. These are the base rules. Here are some of the changes we're going to be making. And that works, um, again, to a point, because putting up these lists of rules is not easy. I'm already designing my own maps, designing my own counters, designing my own scenarios, and now I have to write the rules again too. You know, um, it is tough. Yeah. I mean, I've written rule books before. Um, I'm in the middle of writing one now when I have time, which right now I don't. But um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And again, we're talking about when the when the house rules become bigger than the main set. The Valor and Victory D plus one edition for World War Two is, I think, like 32 pages. And my Valor and Victory Modern Expansion is pushing 25, and I'm not done yet. It's going to be like 90% the length of the uh, of, of the other book. And it's in the same format, same font size, same columns, you know. I want it to look as absolutely close to the original Valor and Victory set as I can so that, you know, players feel familiar when they open the PDF. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, you know, there's so much to, to cover. I mean, that now to, to be fair, in my defense... That Valorant Victory rule set covers everything from here's how a saw works versus an MG42 all the way up to here's, you know, artillery deployed minefields that we see now. I mean, you know, fast scams and stuff like that. So it goes into everything. Night fighting rules, insurgents versus uh, regular forces, um, casualties, civilians, um, casualty evacuation rules, um, POWs, which Valorant Victory doesn't have. So, yeah. And I just keep saying through the rulebook, this is all optional. This is all optional. This is not an official Valor and Victory product. This is all optional. Um, so, yeah, again, at one point, do the rules, do your house rules supersede the original rules? And is that too far? Or might as well, you know, you write your own rule set by that point. I guess it just depends on the scenario and, you know, how much you time and effort you want to invest in it and, you know, if it's just, well, we want the movement rates different or what weapons rates, but if it's like you're rewriting whole sections, then I'd say just write your own rules, right? So, all right, guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show right there. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Any final thoughts before we close out the uh, show today, team? Chicken's my favorite meat. <laughs> <laughs> All righty then. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to say well, that's going our, to that's our, that's our, for dinner. That's our, our, our random contribution from the day. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Uh, we want to thank you all for supporting us. Please make sure you like and subscribe and hit the bell, depending on what format you are on. Uh, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Uh, we've had some really good growth this month. Um, so we are getting up there in numbers and, um, I'm just so excited to see what the future holds and, you know, some of the projects we got coming out. Make sure you check out Jim's Op Center series on Desert Storm slash Desert Shield and uh, the Miniatures War game that happened last Wednesday and the follow-up and part two conclusion on this Wednesday. And then there will be some reviews and some other things going on with Ultra Combat Modern from Dish Dash Games and many, many more things. So, guys, take care. We hope to see you soon. And I am out.